The following sermon is by Dr. Chuck Register, Interim Pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. Last Sunday morning, uh, we began a two-part sermon series, so we finish it up today, on life traits of a godly patriarch. If you're the patriarch and or matriarch of your family, well, I guess you can't be and or, you'd have to be or. You're either the patriarch or you're the matriarch. You can't be both, that's for sure. If you're the patriarch or the matriarch of your family, we're asking the question last week and this week, what are the life traits of a godly patriarch and a godly matriarch? How can we, as we mold and lead and guide and influence our families, how can we do that biblically? And obviously, if we're doing it biblically, we're doing it in a godly fashion. So last week, uh, we looked at two traits. We're going to look at two additional traits this morning. Uh, Last week, we looked at trait number one, that a godly patriarch enjoys an intimate relationship with God. And you'll remember from our study, we went to Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 8, and we discovered there that God himself calls Abraham my friend. We saw the word friend used in that uh, verse of Scripture, Isaiah 41.8. It is a word that doesn't speak of a surface relationship. That's how we use the concept of friendship all too often in, in our culture. But it means a strong, personal, deep relationship. It's a best friend kind of relationship. Can you imagine God looking at Abraham and saying, there's my best friend. I love old Danny. Every time you see Danny, Danny points at you and says, you're my bestest friend. You know, the first two months I was here, I thought he was just saying that to me. (laughs) And then I got to be a little more observant, and I noticed that everybody he saw, Danny would say, you're my bestest friend. Well, in Isaiah 41.8, God looks at Abraham, and he literally says, you're my bestest friend. And God doesn't say that to everyone in Scripture. And we discovered last week that in order to have intimacy with God, that that takes some some interaction with God over time. It, It speaks of a relationship over time. And we saw last week that when we spend time in God's Word and in prayer, and we do that over an extended period of time, our intimacy with God deepens, and perhaps we too can become a friend of God. So trait number one, last week that we saw was that a godly patriarch enjoys an intimate relationship with God. And and the second thing we saw about that is is Jehoshaphat, he acknowledges, he acknowledges this relationship with Abraham. Jehoshaphat, a king, is able to look into Abraham's life and he's able to see that Abraham is the friend of God. The second trait we looked at last week was that Faith in the Lord that activates obedience and culminates in worship is a trait of a godly patriarch. A patriarch has has faith in the Lord that activates obedience to the commands of God, but it always culminates in worship. It's faith that activates obedience, but it doesn't stop with obedience. It takes another step and culminates in worship. 
And we saw that from Genesis chapter 12. You remember when we studied last week that God spoke to Abram. That was Abraham's name early in Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to Abram. He says, I want you to leave your family and your country and your father's household. And I want you to go to a place that I will show you. And, and the Bible says without questioning the father, without arguing with God, Abraham just picks up all that he owns. And he begins to travel to an unknown location, simply following the direction of the Lord. Faith in God that activates obedience, traveling into the unknown, heading to an unknown destination. And we saw in Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham finally gets to where God is leading him, he builds an altar and his obedience culminates in worship. And then we concluded our study last Sunday looking at probably the greatest example of this concept of faith that activates obedience and culminates in worship in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Remember the story? Abraham has one son. It is through that son that God promises to make Abraham the father of a mighty nation. And God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac, your only son, whom you love, and I want you to take him to the mountaintop that I will show you. And then God says something that makes no, no logical sense to Abraham at all. He says, and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice, a burnt offering unto me. And then there's that phrase immediately in Scripture that, that leaves us speechless. It says that Abraham rose early in the morning. Oh, we saw last week how we who are parents, if, if God said to us, I want you to sacrifice your only child as a burnt offering to me, we who are parents in the year 2020, we, we would begin to argue with God and debate with God. And, and I would confess to you, ladies and gentlemen, disobedience would be in the forefront of my thought. But the Bible says Abraham rose early in the morning. And he carried his son with wood and with fire. And they walk together for three days. And finally they come to the mountain. And then there's that powerful scene where, where the Bible says Abraham binds Isaac. He lays Isaac on the wood altar. And he takes the knife in his hand to slay his son. Faith that activates obedience even in the unthinkable. You know the story. God speaks to, to Abraham and he, he stops that execution of Isaac. And Abraham sees the ram caught in the thicket and the ram then replaces Isaac and is offered as a sacrifice unto the Lord as an act of worship. A godly patriarch has faith that activates obedience, but it never stops there. It always culminates in worship. So this morning we come to life trait number three. Life trait number three is this. A, a godly patriarch has a faith that overshadows fear. A faith that overshadows fear. Now, now listen, don't miss this point. This is a powerful point in the sermon this morning. Listen, the first two traits and the fourth trait that we'll look at in a moment 
in those three traits, we're trying to, we're trying to imitate Abraham. Abraham gives us an example in the first two traits. He's going to give us an example in the fourth trait that we'll study in a moment. And we should imitate Abraham. But in this particular trait, a faith that overcomes fear, Abraham fails miserably at this point in his life. As a matter of fact, instead of imitating Abraham, what we're going to see in a moment is that the action that Abraham takes, we should do exactly the opposite. Because what we see in a moment is that Abraham allows his fear to overshadow his faith. And for a godly patriarch, our faith should overshadow our fear. We're going to look at that principle in just a moment. But here's the point I want to make early in the message today is this. The text this morning calls us to be godly patriarchs, not perfect patriarchs. You see, if you're here this morning and you're the patriarch or matriarch of your family clan, your branch of the family tree, God is not asking you today to be perfect. You will not be perfect. You will make mistakes as the patriarch or matriarch of your family. He's not asking you to be perfect. He's just asking you to be godly. I don't remember how many years ago it was, but we were gathered at my mother and father's for Christmas. It was probably the first moment in my life that I realized a significant failure in my life as a parent. Tina, our daughter, and Charlene, and Chip, our son, and his wife, Amber, were involved in one of those confounded board games that they play when we all get together. I'm not a board game player, if you can take it from what I just said. And so I'm seated in the recliner, and I'm trying to watch a, a sports program or a Western, but, but I'm clued into the conversation that's happening around this board game. And as I listen, what I discover is this. Chip is expressing that while he and our daughter were in college, that we as parents showed favoritism to our daughter that we didn't treat them equally. That's the goal of every parent I've ever known. You always want to treat your children equally. You want them to know they're loved equally. But Chip had become convinced. I had never heard him express this in all of his life, but he had become convinced that we had somehow shown favoritism to our daughter and provided much stronger financial assistance for her in college than we had for him. Now, can I confess to you, at first I was very angry. As a matter of fact, I was so angry, I got up out of the recliner. I walked into the bedroom where Charlene's purse was. I took out the checkbook. I began to calculate how in the world does he think we have paid for more of Tina's education than his. And so I walked back into the living room and I said, you name the price. His eyes were as big as saucers. I said, no, you tell me the difference in the treatment financially, I'm writing you a check today. He named a price, I wrote the check. I handed it to him, he refused it. I said, oh no, Buster, you're going to take it. <laughs> because the last thing I want is for one of my children to think I love one more than the other. Or I've treated one more generously than the other. Then over the next few days as I calmed down, I began to realize my fault as the father. I should have never created an environment where my son felt 
that I loved his sister or I treated his sister differently than I treated him. So the point I'm making this morning, before we ever jump into the text to see how faith should overcome fear, the point I'm making is we're not going to be perfect patriarchs and matriarchs. The text is not asking us to do that. The text is demanding today that we are godly patriarchs and matriarchs. Life trait number three, a faith that overshadows fear. Boy, Abraham fails the test in this particular life trait. Look with me, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 10. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, ladies, pay attention, look what a schmuck Sarah married. See now, I know that you're a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Verse 13. Please say that you're my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let me stop and say, technically, what Abram is asking Sarah to do is technically correct. Sarah is technically the half-sister, if you will, of Abram. They share the same father, but different mothers. That does not make sense in our culture that you marry your stepsister, your half-sister, but in the culture of the Old Testament that was common. But the primary relationship between Abraham and Sarah is not a brother-sister relationship. The primary relationship is husband and wife. And so to save himself, he says to her, when everybody in Egypt begins to see how beautiful you are, would you mind just saying to them, oh, no, we're not married. That's my brother. How many of you ladies would like to be married to a man like that? That's what I thought. A man who's willing to sacrifice his relationship with his wife and all of the consequences of that to save his own hide. Well, let's see what happens. Come back with me to the text. Verse 14. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Sarah must have been a strikingly beautiful woman. Verse 15. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. She became a part, if you will, of his harem. She became a part of uh, the pool from which he would select his wives. Verse 16. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Now look at verse 18. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? And ladies and gentlemen, in that moment, a pagan king has more spiritual discernment than the man who's called the friend of God. Pharaoh, a pagan king who has no relationship at all with the God of the Hebrews, he looks at Abraham, who is the man that God calls my best friend, and he says, why have you deceived me? It is a pagan king that calls him out in this lie and deceptive nature. 
Why? Because Abraham allowed fear to overcome his faith. Abraham let his fear of what would happen at the hands of Pharaoh overcome the faith that God could handle any situation in Abraham's life. Come back to the text. Let's see how it ends. Verse 19. Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belong to him. And ladies and gentlemen, this flaw, this character flaw in Abraham's life is committed over and over. Come with me to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. Not not only does Abraham allow fear to overshadow his faith in chapter 12, come back to to chapter 20. He commits the same sin a second time. Look with me, if you will, beginning with verse 8. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all the things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, Why have you done, What have you done to us? And how have you sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. You go home today and read all of verse tw- uh, chapter 20. And what you're going to understand is when Abraham was put in the exact same situation as he was before Pharaoh, he's standing before Abimelech. He's concerned that they're going to notice the beauty of Sarah. And so he says a second time in Genesis chapter 20, look, it worked the first time. Let's try it again. When they ask you, what's your relationship to me? Tell them you're my sister. So it will go well with me. This character flaw of letting his fear overshadow his faith crops up again. It's in Genesis chapter 12. It's in Genesis chapter 20. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not a godly way to live. A godly way to live says that I have such a faith in my father that regardless of the situation and regardless of the danger, faith overshadows fear. Not fear overshadows faith. Now, here's what I really want you to see in this text. There are some sins that as patriarchs, if we repeat them often before our family, listen, they become generational sins. Come with me to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26. Let me show you how this sin of Abraham's becomes a generational sin. It is a sin letting fear overshadow his faith. It is a sin he passes on to his son. Look with me, Genesis chapter 26, verse 6. So Isaac lived in Gerar. When the men of the place asked about his wife, Rebekah is his wife. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, oh, she's my sister. For he was afraid to say, my wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. It came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, a pagan Philistine king, looked out through the window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she is my sister? 
The same sin of Abraham revisited in the next generation. Listen to me, friend. If you're the patriarch or matriarch of your family, if there is a flaw in your character, a flaw where you let fear overshadow your faith, you can be assured that sin will manifest itself in the lives of your sons and daughters. Have you noticed that in society today, that some sins from one generation are passed to the next? Let me give you two examples. Look with me on the screen. From the National Alcoholism Center. Alcoholic families are families that have one or more alcoholics. Genetics, learned behavior, trauma, and stress all do their part to perpetuate the cycle of alcoholism from one generation to generation. Children of alcoholics have a significantly higher risk of lasting psychological issues, including becoming alcoholics themselves. Don't miss the next sentence. In fact, studies show they're four times more likely to develop at least an alcohol abuse problem. The sin of the patriarch or matriarch, if not arrested, if not corrected, manifests itself in the subsequent generation. That's what we see happening in this passage of Scripture. Abraham letting his fear overshadow his faith is passed to Isaac. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know about you, but if there's, there's anything in my life that is a bedrock principle, I do not want to pass my sin on to my son or on to my daughter. I want to be convicted of them. I want to repent of them. I want to change my life and my behavior so my weaknesses and character flaws are not passed on to subsequent generations. One other example I want to show you. This one's just a little, more, uh, a little different. Elizabeth Marquardt, in her book, Between Two Worlds, she's talking about the impact of divorce, writes of the common experience of many adult children of divorce. Quote, our parents' divorce is linked to our higher rates of depression, suicidal attempts and thoughts, health problems, childhood sexual abuse, school dropout, failure to attend college, arrest, addiction, teen pregnancy, and more. Some of us continue to struggle with the scars left from our parents' divorce. We have a harder time finishing school, getting and keeping jobs, maintaining relationships, and having lasting marriages. Now listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. Whatever the sin may be in our life as patriarchs and matriarchs, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Amen? It doesn't have to be passed to the next generation. Through confession and repentance, there can be a fresh start in our life that is a positive influence on the generation to come. Life trait number three. We must have a faith that overshadows fear. Life trait number four. Come with me to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13. Life trait number four. Patriarchs, don't miss this, protect family relationships. Patriarchs protect family relationships. Look with me. Chapter 13 beginning with verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. 
Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. Verse 5. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were great, so they were not able to remain together. Here, here's the picture. Now, Abraham takes all of his possessions, a massive uh, herd that he has accumulated. Now, he and Lot are traveling together. Lot has his own massive herd. And, and so when they stop and begin to settle to pioneer area, what begins to happen is they notice that the land cannot sustain Abraham's herd and Lot's herd. There's not enough grass and pasture for both herds. There's not enough water supplies for both herds. Look what happens as a result. Come back to the text. Look with me, verse 6. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land. Since the land could not sustain both herds, there became friction, tension, arguing, fighting between the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot. You can picture it, can't you? One, one herd is grazing and a, another herd is shepherded in to begin to graze and, and there's not enough food and so the herdsmen begin to fight. One herd is at the watering hole and the second herd arrives and they can't water their livestock and the tension begins. Here's the principle. Don't miss this. A godly patriarch protects family relationships. So let's see what Abraham does to protect the family relationship in this situation. Come back with me. Verse 8. First thing I want you to see, Abraham works proactively. Verse 8. So Abraham said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Now, technically, they're not brothers. Abraham is the uncle. Lot is his nephew. But the point of the verse is that their relationship is a close relationship. It is a strong family bond. They're living and acting as if they are brothers, but they are not brothers. Abraham is the uncle and Lot's the nephew. And in the culture of the Old Testament, ladies and gentlemen, the nephew would always be subservient to the uncle. The uncle is the elder. The uncle is the older. It is Lot's responsibility to pay homage and tribute and to be submissive to his elder Abraham, his uncle. But it is Abraham who sees the problem, the tension, the family tension, and it is Abraham who begins to proactively address the situation. Listen to me, friend. If you're the patriarch or matriarch of your family, you know full well that at times there is tension within the family. Amen? Is my family the only one that experiences tension? Sometimes it's obvious 
She's not speaking to him or he's not speaking to her. Or when she walks into the kitchen, she walks into the living room. It's obvious at times that within the clan, there are relationships that are tense and frayed. Regardless of the reason, regardless of who's right and who's wrong, there's trouble in the garden. Abraham sees this, and being the patriarch, Abraham says, I'm going to proactively address it. I'm not going to let it fester. I'm not going to let it bubble under the surface. I'm not going to wait until there's this huge explosion where it can't be contained. I'm going to proactively grab the bull by the horns and address this relational tension in the family. And look how he does that. Come back to the text. He breaks all cultural norms in his next action. Verse 9. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I'll go to the right. And if to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham addresses this family relationship that's tense and fraying and at the threat of becoming broken, and he addresses it proactively. But what I really want you to see... He addresses it sacrificially. He says to Lot, you pick the land where you want to shepherd your herd in whichever direction you go, I'll go the opposite direction. Remember the cultural norm of the Old Testament? The uncle, the nephew. The nephew is submissive to the uncle the older, the elder. It should have been Abraham who said, Lot, I think I'll take the Jordan Valley and you find the best location you can find. But Abraham didn't do that. Abraham sacrificed personally. Lot, you choose. You you survey the land. You, You pick the pastures and the watering spots that you want for your herd. And whatever direction you go... I'll go the opposite. There are times in every family where a relationship is threatened with dissolving and being broken in the midst of hurt feelings. It is the patriarch's responsibility to address that proactively and to do it even if it means sacrificially. Even if it means that you have to surrender something that is rightfully yours a decision that you should rightfully make, a pleasure in life that you should rightfully enjoy, you have to be willing to say, as the patriarch, as the matriarch, the relationships in our family are so important that I will sacrifice that which is rightfully mine to keep the family together and harmonious. A godly patriarch protects family relationships. 
Now, let me ask you a question on the screen. Next slide, please. So what's the result of a life lived in intimacy with God, with a faith that activates obedience and culminates in worship, with a faith that overshadows fear, and protecting family relationships? What's the result of that kind of life? Come with me to Genesis 25. Genesis 25, one last verse of Scripture this morning, and verse 8. Let's peek in on Abraham's life as it comes to an end. Genesis chapter 25, verse 8. And Abraham breathed his last and died. You know, I read a study this past week that said that 100% of the people who were born die. It was put out by the funeral home industry. They, they were making sure that we understood. 100% of the people who were born die. Now, one day, that's going to be different. One day, Jesus is going to come again, and those who are living in Christ will not experience death. But, but 100% of... It's true in my life. I've never had a friend or... Uh, a, a grandparent or an older friend who, who I know that didn't realize one day death's coming. One day Charlene, if she outlives me, will gather at the First Baptist Church of Stark, Florida, hopefully with both the kids there, and maybe a friend or two, and she's going to listen as a, a preacher says, even if he has to lie, nice things about me. And I'm going to go off to the cemetery outside of Stark, Florida. Let's peek in to Abraham's life when death comes. He's lived his life as a godly patriarch in most instances. He failed in letting his fear overshadow his faith. But in most instances, he's been a godly patriarch. Let's see what Scripture says about his life when he comes to the moment of death that is ahead for each of us in this room. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, and then to put salt in the wounds, an old man. Scripture says he's ripe old age, and in case you missed that, he's an old man. Now here's what we know. We know that when Abraham dies, you look at the verse right before verse 8, we realize he died at 175 but here's what I want you to see. The word ripe in verse 8, Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age. The word ripe means good. The two words old age are literally translated, don't miss this, gray-headed. Here's what the Bible is saying. It's good to be gray-headed. Can I get an amen out of that? You see, all too often in our culture, we think the best age, the, the good age, is in your 20s when you're strong and you have stamina and you're able to do whatever you want to do, or, or perhaps in your 50s when, when your financial situation is probably as healthy as it's ever been. But the Bible says, no, when we get gray-headed, that's the good age, a ripe old age. Praise the Lord, I'm getting gooder and gooder with each passing year. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, gray-headed, an old man, 175 years of age. Here it comes. 
and satisfied with life. And he was gathered to his people. The word satisfied that's used there is a a word that means to be full. The the picture is, think with me about Thanksgiving, and and you've had that big Thanksgiving feast, and you've eaten turkey and dressing, and and you've eaten squash casserole, and you've eaten pecan pie with ice cream on top, and you've had all of those wonderful things that we eat at Thanksgiving, and you finally sit down and you go, (sighs) That's the picture in this verse of Scripture. Abraham looks at his life and he says, I've lived a feast as a patriarch. I've protected family relationships. I've been obedient to the Lord and let that obedience always culminate in worship. He failed with overcoming fear in his life and he did it repetitively. But no patriarch is perfect. But he was so intimate with the Lord that God said, he's my best friend. And Abraham surveys his entire 175 years and he says, I'm satisfied. Ladies and gentlemen, when life comes to an end, you're not really going to care about your financial statement. And you're not going to care about the home that you're leaving behind. But you're going to want to look as the patriarch and matriarch of your life, and you're going to want to be able to say, I'm satisfied. Look at my children. Look at my grandchildren. If you live long enough, look at the great-grandkids. Look at my relationship with the Lord. I'm satisfied. Every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment. Friend, I will say to you this morning that you will never be satisfied at the end of your life unless you walk with the Father through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Unless you turn your life over to Jesus and make Him Lord and Master, your life will always have a big hole in the heart, a void. That professional success and financial wealth and multiple friends cannot fill. Being satisfied with life begins with a relationship with the Father through faith in the Son. This morning I invite you If you've never trusted Jesus Christ, who died on Calvary's cross to forgive you of your sin, who is willing today to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done in your past and to wipe the slate clean and to give you a fresh start. If you've never trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, oh, do that today. Because no matter what you accomplish... And no matter what you achieve, when the moment of death comes, if you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, friend, you will not be able to say, I'm satisfied with life.
Lord, I pray this morning that perhaps, perhaps there's one, two, three, or four who are here who will trust Christ, who will take that step toward intimacy with you, Father, through faith in your Son, and begin the pathway, the journey of being a godly patriarch or matriarch. Lord, would you lead us to faith in you today? And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Register, Interim Pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, visit us on the web at ebcraleigh.com.